starting in the book of Romans. It is a treasure of a book. It is some deep water, if you will. It is as rich as you want it to be. We could probably focus on chapter one, verse one, word one, uh, Paul, and we could probably focus there for three or four weeks just studying the life of Paul in and of himself. And so um, there's just so much that we're going to glean and, and get from the book of Romans. So we're excited for the next couple months, however long it takes us to get through um, we're going to try to get through at least a half a chapter every Wednesday, maybe, maybe a full chapter if we're ambitious and, and, and uh, efficient. So, so why don't we go ahead and open up to uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, again, one of the most comprehensive statements of, of Christian theology. Uh, Paul really does pen a masterpiece here with the book of Romans. Um, the book of Romans is, has been called the gospel according to Paul. Uh, it, it is truly spells out the gospel in, in a, uh, such a magnificent, masterful way. Uh, Paul wrote this epistle right around 56, 57 AD uh, while he was in Corinth on his third missionary journey. And he wrote it to the believers in Christ who were in the city of Rome. Um, at this time, uh, Rome was very ethnically diverse. There's probably about a million people within the city. Uh, about forty to 50,000 Jews in the city at that time. And the Church of Rome was not necessarily founded by Paul, but he knew of the believers there. Um, there is one indication in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, where uh, it was after the, the day of Pentecost and, and everybody started speaking and, and understanding one another, and they were all from these different regions and, and tongues and, and nations. And it says visitors from Rome were in that, that cohort of people. So quite possible that those visitors from Rome then went on after they were uh, in, in filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit, went to go found the church in Rome. So Acts chapter 2.10 is just a little nugget there that gives us some insight as to maybe the seeds of, of where the church of Rome uh, was, was planted. So uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is not one of rebuke like we see in 1 Corinthians. It's not one of correction. He's not correcting anything like he did in Galatians where he's, you know, condemning the Judaizers in, 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 with the Galatians. But again, he just masterly, masterfully lays out the gospel of Christ, the good news of God's salvation. And so if you kind of take a 10,000-foot view of the book, kind of outlining it, chapters 1 through 3 gives us a complete definition of sin. If we, when we go through chapters 1 through 3, we will see the sin of the pagan, those that are, are worshiping false gods, the sin of the, the moral person, and then the sins of, of the religious, those that are trying to seek uh, righteousness by the law. And then chapters 4 and 5 really defines salvation, really gets into justification uh, for sins. Uh, chapters 6 through 8 get into sanctification. And chapters 9 through 11 are all about Israel. Israel past, Israel present, and Israel future. God is not done with Israel. It's very clear in his word that he's not done with Israel. And chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a, 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 a great scripture to go over with, with regard to Israel. Chapters 12 through 15 are then we get into the practical applications as Christians, how we can live out our Christian faith. And then chapter 16, Paul gives commendations to about 27 people by name and, and their households. And and he calls them, calls them by name and all these people. So he's very familiar with them. And he has such uh, fond things to say to them and, and uh, regarding them. And so that's kind of his farewell. So that's kind of the 10,000 square foot, 10,000 foot view of the book of Romans. And so as we kind of dig in and, and, and start taking a little bit deeper, deeper look, we're going to be in chapter one, verse one here. So Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And so like I said, Paul, we could go into uh, the background of Paul. We could go into the life of Paul and really study the biography of his life and be here for quite a while. And so uh, author of 13 New Testament books. Uh, the epistles. He was born Saul of Tarsus uh, of Cilicia, which was uh, in the south central region of Turkey. He was born also a Roman citizen. Paul, prior to accepting Jesus, was one of the most learned scholars of his day. Uh, Paul was circumcised. He, he, he kind of gives a, a, a self-description of himself. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. And so he was... A, a, a Pharisee's Pharisee. He was on the fast track, one of the most learned scholars of the day. He was educated under Gamaliel, one of the most renowned uh, rabbis of the time. He was 
uh, strictly according to the law, the word says, of the Jewish fathers being zealous for God. And it's funny that he equates zealousness, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for his work that he was persecuting the church. And we learned about that as we studied Acts. He, he would pursue Christians and, and, and their families, rip them out of their homes, imprison them, put them on trial, even uh, martyr them. And so he was there at, at the time of Stephen's martyrdom. He was actually holding Stephen's garments. And Paul also stated that he advanced beyond many of his contemporaries, being more extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions. So Paul was one of these guys that just excelled. He was driven. He was very, very smart. And he just didn't let anything get in his way. And, and, and he was excelling in his Jewish, uh, his Jewish learnedness and his education. And, and so as to the righteousness of the law, he was found blameless. So in order to be righteous to the law or blameless to the law, you have to know the law really well. He knew the law inside and out, frontward and backward. And so he could, he could say that he was blameless to the law. And so this highly educated, relentlessly driven, exceedingly zealous man, uh, ability to communicate is, is off the charts. We read his, his letters and they're so beautifully planned, penned. And yes, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but you read Paul's writings and it's, it's just... It's difficult to even try to uh, come up with the words of how beautiful of an orator he was and how beautiful of a writer he was. And so he comes into this uh, encounter with Christ, and he now doesn't lose any of that. God uses all of those uh, characteristics and experiences and education and all of those great things that have been instilled in him and then empowers him to now go preach the gospel of Christ. And so it is, too, with us. We don't have to throw away everything that we once came from, our education, the things that we learned, the talents and abilities that we once used in the world. They can be used for the glory of Christ, right? And so I remember working with a gentleman who was a principal that I worked under when I was in the educational field. And I just, this guy was very gregarious. He had such a great way of communicating, smart. He could put together a speech on the fly. He was good with people. And I said, man, this guy would be an amazing pastor. He, if he just loved the Lord and dedicated his life to the Lord and took those skills that he has right now and put that into the pulpit, he would be dangerous for the Lord. And so, um, you know, we don't have to throw away these things that we have, uh, that have been instilled in us and that we used at one point in, in our walk when we weren't walking with God. Um, and Paul is a prime example of that. He took all of those things that were having him excel in his Judaism, he took that to the next level as a Christian. God definitely used every single bit of it. And then he describes himself as a bondservant. In Greek, this is doulos. It means a willing servant. It's, it's a servant who had once they had served their time, they would willfully stay with their master because they loved their master so much. They would then put their ear to the doorpost and, and, and drive an awl or, or what, what would be an earring through their ear to, to demonstrate their service and their, and their commitment to their master. And so he says he was a bondservant of Christ. Um, interestingly enough, Paul prized his freedom. He knew what it meant to be a Roman citizen, and he exercised that right towards the end of the book of Acts, and he knew that, that freedom was, was prized and, and, and very precious, but he calls himself a bondservant of Christ. He willingly is serving Christ, and his greatest honor was to be a bondservant of Christ. Notice he puts that first before he recognizes himself as an apostle. Um, I believe Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, he, he, he kind of gives an, an indication here of why this is such a priority for his life. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Jesus, made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way and nailed it to the cross." Paul was saying the certificate of debt, he, he had a certificate of debt that was probably miles and miles long, just as all, as all of us do. But he recognized that that was canceled out completely, null and void, with Jesus nailing it to the cross. And so he has no other response, no other way to, to respond but to say, I am a doulos, I am a bondservant, I am at your service. And this would have resonated with, with the, uh, with the uh, Jews or the Christians, excuse me, at the time, because there was about uh, six million slaves in the Roman Empire at this particular time, and many of the Christians were enslaved. They were in, in, a, in a slave um, kind of status in terms of society. And so many Christians were uh, reading this and, and were able to identify with this. And so Paul also says 
that in Galatians 6.17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. There's no doubt, at the end of Paul's life, he was beaten, battered, probably scarred up and down. And he said those brand marks of Jesus were uh, the result of being that bond slave, that bond servant of Christ. And so how do you know if you are a bond servant? You know, that is a, a humble title. It's something that we as Christians should be able to identify with. It's something that we should embody. And so how do you know that if, if you are indeed a servant, a true servant? And so some of the litmus tests can be, you know, how do you respond when you are, not asked, when you are asked not to do something but ordered? <laughs> when you're ordered to do something or expected to do something, and it really isn't necessarily your job, but somebody orders you to do it. How do you respond? What is the, the natural inclination of, of your response? How do you respond when you've done that one thing 5, 10, 15 times, and it's probably time for somebody else to finish that task, but you're the one now being asked to do it? How, how do you respond in those moments? And how do you respond when you'd rather not do something at all, or it's not time, or not a good time, or inconvenient for you? You know, so as, as a bond servant, we have to lay ourselves down, lay our own agendas down. And Paul is saying that that is his disposition towards his Lord. Such a great example for us. And then after bond servant, he says he is called as an apostle. This was not a self-appointed title. He was not an apostle by Paul. He was commissioned not by a group of people. Uh, each one of us here, are this, we are called Maybe not to be an apostle, and, and we'll get to that definition of an apostle in a second, but each of us have been called to a specific ministry. Maybe not to a pulpit ministry, but we've been called to serve God in some way, shape, or form. And so you might not be called as an apostle, but you could be called as fill in the blank. And so um, if you know your calling or ha have an idea of what your calling is, um, it most likely fits the things that come to you naturally and easily. Not that it would be an easy task to do. Not that it would be something simple or without adversity or without challenges. But there's things that we are naturally inclined to do, and we can do those for the glory of God. And so the things that come natural to you could be, in fact, an indication of what your calling is. And, and so Paul obviously filled his calling and, and things that he did very, very well, he excelled in as a Christian, as we, as we talked about earlier. So many times Paul in other epistles refers to himself as an apostle of, in Ephesians he says, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. So again, he's not by the will of man or by a self-proclaimed apostle. I love how he says it in Galatians. He opens up his letter to the Galatians. It says, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead. So again, not from man, but from God. So he is saying, the authority that I have as an apostle is not by me, not by some group of men or some commissioned group. It is by the agency of Jesus Christ, God the Father. And so, again, when, when this type of apostleship doesn't really exist these days, and when we think of apostle, uh, we think of somebody who's planting churches. And we do have missionaries that go out and plant churches. They go to different parts of maybe the country or different parts of the world, and they plant churches very, very similar to as pa what Paul did. But Paul's apostleship allowed him to govern these churches, to be a spiritual authority for these churches. So he would go and he would visit or he would write them letters as we see here. And so he was somebody that would correct if there was heretical teaching, if there was some gross immorality or sin going on. He would be that spiritual authority as the apostle that had founded the church to make those corrections. And so... Um, Again, when you are called by God, you have this, this, this authority, and, and uh, God gave Paul this authority for these churches. When you enter into your calling, you will have a similar authority. God will give you an authority, not to lord over those you serve with or serve over, but it will, it will, it will be a, an effectiveness, a power that you have within your calling because God has given you that authority in in that calling. And so sometimes, again, it can be the talents that you possess. It could be whether you sing, whether you play an instrument, whether you're good athletically. And, and sometimes those things might not be in a, a, an express service to God, but it can give you a platform to glorify God. And that could be your calling. You could be a, 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 use your platform that, that you have achieved through the talents and gifts that you have to be uh, of service to the Lord. So Again, that word apostle is, is not necessarily something that we see here in, in this day and age. We do have missionaries that go out and plant churches. We do have those that go and get sent out. Um, but at, at this day and age, that, that kind of a apostle is, is no longer. And so he says he was set apart for the gospel of God. 
And this word set apart, we know, is, means consecrated, holy, um, set aside. It, it carries with it the notion of, of the horizon. So when you look at the horizon, you see the sky separated from the earth or the ocean. It's this, this separation that we have now. And he's separated for the gospel of God. And in Galatians 1.15, uh, Paul states that he was set apart while he was in his mother's room. It says, God set me apart even from my mother's room and called me by his grace. So even before birth, Paul recognizes that he was set apart by God. And then Jesus himself in Acts 9.15 sets Paul apart at his conversion. It says, uh, Paul was a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So at the moment he received Christ as his Lord and Savior, he was again chosen. He was set apart. He was holy set aside for, for Christ's purposes. And then in Acts 13, 2, when he's going, right before he's going out to his mission, first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And so guys, we have that, that, that calling to be set apart from the world. Just as the horizon, the sky is separate from the ocean. When you look out on the horizon, we are to be set apart from the world for the gospel of God. And, and that's what I honed in on in that particular portion of scripture. If you notice, he's not set apart from something. He's set apart for something. He's set apart for the gospel. And it is, it is good to be set apart from something. If you had a, a life that was uh, living contrary to the Lord, maybe you were in a life of gang activity or drug use or you know embezzlement or whatever it could be, you could be set apart from those things and set free from that lifestyle. But at that point, then what? Okay, you're not doing those things anymore. You're abstaining from that sin or that sinful lifestyle. But now what? You can't just sit there impotent and, and ineffectual for God. So what, uh, what Paul is saying is I've been set, for, set apart for the gospel of God. You can be removed from that former life, but then set on a course for the gospel of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. He was set apart for the gospel of God. And he says in Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. All those things that I once did, all those things that I'm being set apart uh, uh, from, and now I'm, I'm set apart for the gospel of Christ, all those things are rubbish, trash, counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And, and, I, and I think Paul served with such a fervor and such an effectiveness when he's God, penning his final words to, in, in 2 Timothy, he says, For the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He knew his purpose. He knew his calling. And he could confidently say that he finished the course, that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished his race. And so um, hopefully that is our words uh, towards the end of our lives, unless the Lord comes back soon, right? And, and maybe he does. But at the end of our lives, hopefully we can say we've been set apart for the gospel of Christ. And we can say those very things. We finished the course. We fought the good fight. We've kept the faith. So Paul's effectiveness in his ministry was his firm understanding and his commitment that he was set apart for the things of God for, for the work of what God had him to do, to plant churches, to be that spiritual authority, to uh, pen beautiful epistles that have now, 2,000 years later, continue to give us such rich instruction. And so for, for every Christian, hopefully you can replace your name where Paul's name is, and maybe not the apostle, but you can say, if you go back to the verse one here, it says your name. So if I put Chris a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as, and then I plug in what I'm called as, set apart for the gospel of God. Hopefully you can do that little word play there and you can start to fill in your name and what you're called to do and then you can be set apart for the gospel of God in that way according to how God has called you. And so moving on, verse 2 Verses 2, 3, and 4, actually, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in verses 2 through 4, Paul declares Jesus as the promised one. In verse 3, as the one who reigns, the, the reigning one. And in verse 4, as the resurrected one. And so a promise is, is more than just something that is being foretold, right? It's more than just pr prophets would foretell God's, uh, uh, God's coming uh, attractions, if you will. But a promise is a solemn oath and, and, and one that you need to make good on. 
And so God, who cannot lie, who, who does not shift, who there is no variation, had promised beforehand through his prophets, Jesus. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophets made these advanced announcements of the Messiah. And as you read the Old Testament, you begin to see clearly all these pictures, these types, these shadows, these foreshadowings of Christ. And so the cross, the church, Jesus, the second coming, all clearly spelled out through the prophets in the Old Testament. He's the reigning one. In order to be the reigning one, the the king of Israel and uh, foremost, the king of kings, He's this descendant of David. That's, that's a qualification. If he was not of the Davidic line, he would, couldn't fulfill that particular, uh, that particular title. He was the reigning one. He is of the line of David. And not only that, he's the king of kings because he's the resurrected one. There's been many kings and authorities and, and, and generals, and, and they've won amazing battles and have conquered many lands, but nobody has conquered sin, death, and the grave. And Jesus is the only one who has won that victory and won that battle. And so therefore, by the spirit of holiness, he is Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He is the king of kings. He is the resurrected one. So Paul gives us those three aspects of Christ, the promised one, the reigning one, and the resurrected one. According to the flesh, Jesus was the son of David. He was fully man. But according to the spirit of holiness, he is the son of God, and he's simultaneously fully God. So again, the promised one, the reigning one, and the resurrected one. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus. So through whom we have received grace and apostleship. First of all, it is so important as Christians, we understand what we have in that word grace. To understand the definition is one thing, but to understand grace, and I'll I'll confess as a Christian, it took me some time to wrap my spiritual arms around what that meant, what the grace of God truly meant. And so I guess the best way I can explain grace is, um, let's say my son, who's not of driving age yet, but let's say he's 16 and he takes out my truck and he completely totals it. Dad, I was on my phone. I was looking at my phone and I just rear-ended the guy in front of me and I totaled the truck. Well, justice would be, you know what, son? Uh, you're going to have to, A, you're getting your privileges taken away. You're, you're not going outside for a while. You're on restriction. A lot of your privileges are going to be withheld and you're going to need to work and pay every dime to, to pay back the, the, that truck so we can buy a new truck. And so that would be justice. And, and mercy would be, you know what, son? I'm glad you're okay. Um, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. I'm just glad you're okay. I'm glad the other people are okay. But grace would be, um, I'm going to buy you a new truck. And you're going to have a truck of your own. Now, my son would have done nothing to earn that truck. It's undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor by his father. Even in his darkest mess up of ruining the very truck that I drive, I'm now going to purchase, I'm going to forgive him of not only totaling my truck, but I'm going to now buy him a truck of his own, something that he does not deserve, didn't earn at all. And so when we wrap our minds around the grace that we have in Christ, we can do nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to manipulate God to get more of it. We can't do anything. It's all based on the Lord. And so when we receive that grace, then we understand what we have in our salvation. And so before you can get into service, the apostleship, you have to understand that peace. You have to understand grace. You have to have to understand the riches that we have in Christ and, and, and what is offered to us through salvation. That's why it's called the good news. All of my stuff, that, that all that stuff is wiped away clean. My slate is wiped clean. And not only that, I get so much going forward that I don't deserve. And, and I did nothing to earn it. It's all about his love, and it's, it's the outpouring and the uh, emanation of, of Christ's love. And so salvation must come before service. And, and once we understand our salvation, it's a natural response now to go out and, and now serve. So he's saying, we have now, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, apostleship to bring to the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. And so... Obedience of faith from all the Gentiles for his namesake. Uh, It's so important to to, to focus on obedience as well because grace is a beautiful thing. The love of God is a beautiful thing. But love and grace, again, we can't just stop there. We are also called to obedience and holiness. Jesus uh, desires obedience over sacrifice. To be obedient and and to pursue holiness. Be holy for I am holy. 
Um, that's where the, the blessings flow. That's where we continue to grow as Christians. And again, it's not a, a legalistic approach. It's not just obedience and holiness only because then you can get legalistic and, and start to condemn yourself and, and start to get really heavy-handed in that area. So we do have love and grace and, and, and we do grasp onto that. And we're so grateful for that. But now there's a, an aspect to our faith, which is obedience. And as a believer in Christ, again, our disposition towards Jesus is one of obedience. If he is truly my Lord, and I am truly a doulos, a bondservant, that presupposes, that already supposes that there is a level of obedience. There is a Lord, and then there is a servant. And there is no word, there, there should be no, uh, no sentence that says, no, Lord. Not right now, Lord. I don't feel like it, Lord. A doulos, a bondservant, is about responding in obedience to when we are called to do something according to what the Lord has for us. And so as we are obedient, we live a holy, set-apart life, and, and that's where the blessings start to flow. That's where we start to really grow in our walk in, in, as a Christian. And we do this under the authority of the greatest name. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And so, again, that is the name of Christ. And so Jesus is our Lord. We are obedient. And that's what Paul's saying here. Obedience of faith from all the Gentiles for his, Jesus' namesake. Verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So although Paul is personalizing this letter to the beloved of God in Rome, you know, I, I can't help but to think, but we too are the beloved of God. Maybe not in Rome, but here at CCWG. So I like to kind of pretend like to all of the beloved of God at CCWG. And he, he, he's, th this letter, letter is so pertinent now. It, it's written, you know, close to 1900, maybe 2,000 years ago. It is so pertinent and prevalent and relevant now to what, where we are as Christians and, and, and so rich for for us to get into now. So the book of Romans, again, has a slightly different dynamic to it since the church of Rome was not one Paul had quite, he didn't found and he hadn't yet visited, but he is expressing an, a, a desire to, to be there with him. And so you can see um, that he calls them the beloved of God in Rome called as saints. And so that word saints, again, just if you're a Christian, you're a saint. You know, sainthood has been conferred upon man or defined by uh, the Catholic Church in a way that is not biblical. So we think that there has to be certain things that have to happen in a person's life and maybe even after their death before they can be called a saint. And that's not biblical. The biblical definition of a saint is just one who's received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. And, and it's really spoken about in Ephesians is we have this uh, this new race that we belong to, a Christian saint. So whatever race that you are a part of, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, uh, Asian, it doesn't matter. As soon as you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, we are now one race. We are uh, called as saints. And so to be a saint simply means you've responded to the calling of God by putting your faith and trust in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here, to the beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And so as we get in uh, uh, as we get into the second half of the chapter of Romans 1, you know, the, these people of Rome are in a very uh, hostile environment towards Christians. It, it's very worldly, very pagan. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of different uh, uh, sin going on. And, and we'll, when we get into the second half of Romans, starting in, in verse 18, we start to see that uh, the Romans were suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And we're going to get a very detailed definition of what sin looked like in the, 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 uh, the time of, of this letter. And Paul goes on to describe that the list and the types of lifestyles that were prevalent in Rome at that time. And the very people he's writing to are the very people that were called out of these lifestyles. And so, again, it's very near and dear to Paul's heart. You can hear how, uh, how much affection he has to the people of Rome. And so, again, being called a saint unifies us all together no matter what lifestyle we've been drawn away from and, and now we're set apart to the gospel of God. And he finally gets to kind of his, his final opening, right? He's finally greeting, because um, everything has been about Jesus. I think to, up until this point, either Jesus or the Lord has been said about seven times. I think I counted about seven times in, in uh, seven verses or eight verses, six, six to seven times. So finally he says, grace to you and peace from God. So he, he kind of uses a hybrid uh, opening, and, and you see this opening quite a bit in Paul's letters. 
He says grace and peace. And so grace in, in the Greek would be charis, uh, charis, and it would be a common Greek greeting. It would just mean grace. So he's, he's saying grace. That would be a common greeting for those uh, that, that were uh, of that day and age that were of, of the Greek descent. And then he was, he's saying shalom, or the Jewish greeting meaning peace. So he's kind of doing this dual greeting, and you see that grace and peace. However, you, you can't know the peace of God unless you know the grace of God. And so we talked about grace and what it means and, and how we respond to that. But once we do understand the grace of God, right, and we get into, we, we can get into service, but we also can get and know the peace from God. But before you have the peace from God, you have to make peace with God. And Paul says in, in, in Romans 5.1, for we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't have peace from God until you make peace with God. God says we, we were enemies with him, right? We were hostile towards him. And when we were not walking with, with Christ, we were an enemy of Christ. And that, that's a strong word. That's strong terminology to think that I was once an enemy of Christ. And I could have been just indifferent, apathetic, um, just benign and not really focused on Christianity or any religion at all. Or I could be somebody that was vehemently against Christianity like, like Paul was. But once we come to that place of accepting the Lord, now we've made peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then once we have the peace with God, we can experience a different kind of peace that Paul talks about in Philippians, and that's the day-to-day peace. That's the peace of God. And Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will do two things. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So once the peace from God can only be attained when we make peace with God through Christ, and then we get that day-to-day peace that is the peace of God that calms our hearts, calms our anxieties, calms our, our minds, and it's so, so necessary now with everything going on politically, what's going on with COVID-19, what's going on in our rural world. Be anxious for nothing. And anxiety is probably at the highest level in terms of our society now, in terms of our country now. It's probably never been higher, right? And so here is a verse you can grab onto, memorize it, chew on it, recite it, commit it to memory, and, and, and apply it to your walk each and every day, and you will get the peace of God. And all of a sudden, when things seem to be just stirred up around you and things are literally falling apart at the seams or you're going through some difficult times at work or you're having difficult times financially or you lose a loved one in an untimely manner, you have the peace of God that surpasses your comprehension. It, It defies logic and you're just going through these situations with a peace that is not of your own and you can't even really comprehend it or people can't even really comprehend it. My uh, aunt stood up this very pulpit uh, at when, when my uh, uncle passed away, and he, he died relatively uh, young in his, in his late 50s and left behind two teenage boys. And she stood up here and gave his eulogy, and she had a peace that I marveled at, and it was a peace of God that, that came that was beyond any understanding, and she will even tell you to this day. And that was 15, 16 years ago now, and it was a peace that, again, was evident because of Christ, guarded her heart and her mind in that time. And so the peace of God comes through just prayer, supplication, thankfulness. And again, those day-to-day circumstances will no longer overtake us and overwhelm us. They will be manageable, and we will have a calm, sound, rational, grounded approach to things. We won't fly off the handle, make um, uh, irrational decisions, and, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're going to be, we're, we'll be solid. So the peace of God is about relationship, staying close to God, staying fervent in prayer, and, and he mentions that shortly here. And so moving on, verse 8. So now he gets to, uh, he gets to kind of the, the, the start of the letter here. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. So he opens this letter by thanking God. Paul is, is, is really showing his heart to these people. Paul has endured hardships. He suffered more probably than any other apostle up until this point. Um, again, he's learned, he's cultured, he's well-written, he's respected, he's prolific in his writings, and yet he's saying, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because of your faith. He is not artificially puffing them up. He's not blowing smoke at them. He's really trying to edify them and encourage them. And a man of Paul's stature to write this to the Christians of Rome 
had to be so encouraging. It had to be so edifying. If you can imagine receiving that type of encouragement from a man like Paul, the spiritual authority, the, the governing lead, leader of the churches of this time, he's showing his tenderness. He's showing his heart. He's showing his pastoral heart as well, and he'll show it a little bit further here in a moment. And so being a Christian can be a lonely road sometimes. You might be the only Christian in your family. You might be the only Christian in your neighborhood. You might be the only Christian at your workplace. It can be a lonely road at times. It doesn't mean that you're alone because you have Christ with you, but it can be a lonely road at times. And so when you are at your place of work or with your family or amongst peers, um, your faith can be proclaimed but not received. You can share your faith and it might be rejected. And that can, again, start to get disheartening and uh, you can get disillusioned a bit and one can get deflated in those situations. And Paul is, is writing to them to encourage them. And he's, he, again, he's expressing a desire to get to Rome and he will get to Rome. But, you know, in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, Paul is exhibiting that particular verse. He says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And so, again, if, if you have somebody that you haven't reached out to in a while, text them really quick. Shoot them a quick text. Give them an email, maybe a quick phone call. You can exhort them in the same way and encourage them in the faith just as Paul is. And, and I hope that's what we do here at CCWG, that the, the pastors and those that are in ministry here are encouraging you and, and building you up in the faith, not that you're not feeling alone and isolated and, and by yourself out on an island, that you are spurring on to good works and, and continually being, being built up. And we pray that, you know, when you guys serve and you guys encourage us, it, it does the same for us. It builds us up. When we see you guys in action, we see different ministries popping up, different people stepping up into open ministry positions, whether that be children's ministry or leading a life group or going out in the mission field or what have you. It encourages us because your faith now is being proclaimed, maybe here in the community or in the world at large. And so just makes us hungrier to continue to serve, hungrier for the word, hungrier to grow as Christians. And so you can do that for one another. We can do that for one another as, as we move forward together in this church. And so this is a, 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 a sign of a healthy, functioning church. It's a healthy body of Christ when we are edifying one another and spurring one another on in this way. Verse 9, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So many make the mistake of trying to serve God in their own strength. Many make the mistake of trying to do it in their own intellect. Uh, Paul would be the, the the, the, the chief of, of having every reason to do all of those things, right? He was intellectual. He was a, a driven, strong man. He, he, he never showed any weakness necessarily. And yet notice how he's, what he says in verse 9, whom I serve in my spirit. And so many make the mistake of trying to serve God in other ways. And the only way to truly serve God with any type of lasting effect, any type of lasting mature fruit is to serve him through the spirit. And so that spirit is, is that inner man. You know, we have our physical body, which is our outward representation. This tent is passing away, it gets sick, it gets old, it starts to decay, right? So we have this physical representation. And then we have our soul, which is our mind, our will, our emotions, and then we have the inner man. We have our spirit. And once that spirit is, comes to life, when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we are now given spiritual life, remember in John, uh, John uh, chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Jesus said, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say you must be born again. People have a tough time with that concept, but when you're born again, you're born again of the spirit. And now you have this connection with the Lord that didn't exist before. And as you have this connection, you're born of the Spirit, you now have the ability to discern things in the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, Paul says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when you're born of the Spirit, now you have a spiritual discernment. And now you can be, uh, understand and discern what your calling is for, for what God would have you to do. And as you step into that calling, you're now serving God in the spirit, being spirit led. You know, there's sometimes you have to step out in faith. And, and that faith is a part of serving God in the spirit. And again, that, it might not go well. It might be a flop. It might be something that you had to learn, uh, uh, learn something through and, 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 and maybe it didn't go the way you had planned. 
But when you step out and you're serving God in the spirit, again, there's no better way uh, to have lasting effect than when you're serving God in the spirit. And that's what he's saying, preaching the gospel of his son. That's exactly what he was called to do. So when a person tries to serve the Lord in their flesh or by any other way, it just is hollow. It falls flat. And, and again, there is no lasting reflect, uh, effect. And so Paul then starts to show his pastoral heart. For God is my witness. He appeals to God. He says, for God is my witness. And, and there's that little kind of, not parenthetical, but there's a little piece in there that's separated by commas. If you just take that piece out, it says, for God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests. For a man who was so prolific, so driven, so uh, world-renowned in, in, in who he was, he says, I, I make, uh, uh, I unceasingly make mention of you in my prayers. As a new pastor, somebody who's new to the ministry, at least in this sense, that was very, very convicting. And so I had to, I go, well, what does that word unceasingly mean? Because that means never stopping in my, you know, in my intellect. As I read it, that was the context that I read it as. And, and he's not using this word in that sense, and he's not using it for hyperbole. And, and, and really what it means is there's a frequency and a consistency and an urgency, meaning there isn't a lot of time that's going between prayers. So he's praying for them, and there's not a lot of time elapsing between prayers before he's praying for them again. He's praying for them again. And so every time he's getting into prayer, whether it's a, a quick little moment of prayer, how many of you guys all of a sudden wake up at 2.33 in the morning for no reason, and you're laying there going, why am I awake? It's another time to pray unceasingly for somebody. You, somebody, maybe God put somebody on your heart. You have a situation going on in your life. Somebody, a family member, a friend. That's another time to start praying unceasingly. Not a lot of time elapsing between prayers. And that's what he's saying here. The believers in Rome were apparently unaware that he had this prayer life for them. And again, what another encouragement. I don't know if you've ever received somebody. Uh, somebody said, you know, I've been praying for you. I've been praying for you. And, and, I, and you didn't know it. And when they extend that gesture to you and they're earnestly saying that from the bottom of their heart, it is such a beautiful, beautiful gesture. And as a Christian, you can't uh, help but to be humbled. You can't help but to want to reciprocate and pray for them. Hey, is there anything I can pray for you? And again, it's just another beautiful sign of a healthy body of Christ. Instead of tearing one another down, gossiping, maybe you know, uh, being jealous of one another and tearing the body down, we're building the body up, praying for one another, lifting one another up. And that's what Paul is saying here. I am making my prayers to, I'm making mention of you in my prayers in, in a way that is uh, Title, uh, termed unceasing, um, making, and God is my witness. He's, that, he's appealing to the Lord. You know, I'm not lying. Trust me here. <laughs> Honest to God, this is how I pray for you. And so um, Jesus is also our intercessor, right? We know that Jesus is our intercessor. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, them who being that love God and draw near to God. And so Jesus is our intercessor. He's constantly interceding on our behalf. Paul is giving us a demonstration or, or an example of, of Jesus, and we also can take uh, a, a page out of Paul's book there to pray unceasingly for those who we love, who are on our heart, for whom God puts on our heart. Maybe people we, have a, we don't even like, some of our enemies we have to pray unceasingly for. And so making intercession behalf, uh, on behalf of those people, um, we can do that in, in the same way. And again, that was convicting for me as a new pastor. Am I, am I living up to that calling? And again, not in a condemning way, but more of a, of a challenge and, and one that um, just challenged me in the right way. And so when, when you uh, get into God's word and you really dig into scriptures like this, because you could blow right through that particular scripture, right? You could say, oh, that's just how Paul is, is uh, relating to the people in Rome. But when you start to apply it to your own life and reflect upon it, it really puts it in perspective and, and challenges you. And so Paul shows his pastoral heart. You know, again, Paul being a driven man, somebody who, who, who would be traveling multiple missionary journeys, he still had this unbelievable loving heart to the people he served. And he showed his great pastoral love, the love of a shepherd, the, uh, the agape love, the sacrificial type of love that was uh, taught about on Sunday. Verses 11 through 13, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while amongst you, 
each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul, in in chapter 16 of of Romans, if you flip forward to chapter 16, you don't have to do it now. You can just trust me. He names about 27 different people and their households. So he's intimately aware of these these folks in Rome. And and he's just expressing the desire to get there, to be with them, and to uh, just be together with them in their presence. So he's not only just greeting them, and he's not only exhorting them, he's expressing this desire to spend time with them. And and he says that he would impart some spiritual gift to them, that they may be established. He wants them to continue to grow and and be rooted and grounded in their faith. And and he uses words like, you know, in in verse uh, chapter 16, like my beloved and fellow worker in the Lord and choice man in the Lord. He uses these beautiful terms of endearment that also indicate how he feels about their and how he views them as as a Christian and, and in their walk. And so Paul, in verse 12, if you notice, he changes gears a little bit because he takes it more about from himself, and then he starts to make it more of a a, a reciprocal thing. So he says, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. So he's, he almost kept, you can almost track his train of thought. He's there to, to bless them and establish them. But then he's like, well, that is, wait a second. I'm also going to be encouraged that we would be encouraged together while among you. So he's talking about being together. And it really got me thinking about this whole time of quarantine and being separated and isolated. And we really have to start to ask ourselves what voices or what information or what sources are we adhering to, listening to, putting stock in? Because when we are isolated and when we aren't together, those types of things don't happen. When we are not with one another, we can't encourage one another. And that's what Paul's stressing here. I want to get together physically with you so we can encourage one another in the faith. It's not just a pastor to his sheep. It's not just uh, from the pulpit to the congregation. This is a two-way street. This is, a, a, this is reciprocity going on here. We get as built up uh, by you guys as hopefully we build you up. It is something that, that that's why we've re- remained committed to keeping these doors open and preaching from this pulpit week in and week out, having our ministries available because we know the value of that. And so, we have to make these difficult decisions in this day and age because there's so many, so many contrary opinions to say, no, you need to isolate, you need to quarantine, you need to stay away. And, and, and those are difficult things to reconcile, right? And so you can put stock in that and you can put a lot of weight in that and, and nobody's gonna fault you for it because again, you're making a decision based on that information. You can also balance it with the word of God. And, and, and when I look at the word of God, Psalms 139.16 tells me, that your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet they were not one of them. The psalmist is telling me that God had ordained the number of days for me before I would, had even taken form. I, I have a set of days that have been ordained for me by God. He's going to sovereignly take me through my life. Whether that's 30 years, 60 years, 90 years, I don't know, but I'm going to trust that God has ordained my life and, 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 and to, to take me to that completed part of my life. He's the giver of life. He's the taker of life. I have to tr- if I truly entrusted my life to the Lord, I'm going to be sensitive to the leading and guiding and direction of the Spirit in those senses. I, I might have a different conviction than my brother or my sister. You might have a different conviction than me, and that's okay. But I'm going to, again, I'm going to balance out what some of the things have been proclaimed in the news and on different websites and social media and whatnot. I'm going to balance that out with God, and then I have to decide what do I put stock in more? What, what, what has more value? What has more weight? Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 25, when he was talking about the birds of the air and, and the lilies of the field, he says, and which of you by worrying can add one day to his lifespan? I can't worry about that. I can't, any worry is not going to add one more minute, one more day, one more year to my life. I can't worry about those things. And then in verse 32 of that same chapter, Jesus said, do not be afraid, little flock, because your father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Paul reiterates this in Philippians, and he, he expresses it again in, in, in only the way Paul can. He says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which one to choose. 
It's a, I'm caught between a rock and a hard place. If I stay here, I'm going to serve Christ and I'm going to go hard for the Lord. If I'm going to be with the Lord, praise God, because now I'm delivered from all this craziness and, and I'm going to be in glory, uh, free, from, free from all this decay and pain and suffering. I don't know which one to choose. He says in verse 23, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. So if you were to give me a choice right now, if you were to give me a glimpse into what eternity looked like to be present with the Lord, I don't know which one I choose. I have a beautiful wife. I have two beautiful, healthy kids. I love this church as much as anything, and I love serving here. So my life is full and rich, and I am so blessed. Praise God. But if I was given a glimpse into eternity, I'm hard pressed. <laughs> it's a difficult decision. But if I'm staying here, I'm going hard for the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. If, if the Lord's keeping me here, um, I'm going as hard as I can during that time. And my days are ordained by Christ. And if Jesus is the author and finisher of my faith, I, he's writing my story right now and he's going to finish it. If Jesus, who began a good work in me, is faithful to complete it, then he will complete it. And I'm going to trust that. And if my day is tomorrow, you know what? My day is tomorrow. If my day is not for 20 years, and if the Lord tarries, great. And if he comes back, and hopefully we are of the generation that maybe we get caught up and we don't even have to experience a physical death, praise God that way too. But until that time, we have to look at what Paul's saying. I'm striving to get together with you so we can encourage one another. Again, track his train of thought there in verse 12. That is, no, 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 it's going to be a two-way street. It's going to be a reciprocal thing here. So my days are ordained for me. I, I, I trust that in the Lord. And it's, I'm hard-pressed. It's a tough decision. But I'm going to, as long as I'm here, I'm going to go hard for the Lord. Verse 14, and then he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So he's basically saying, whether you're smart, whether you're a little foolish, the Greeks obviously had, had, a, had a very um, high esteem of themselves. They were known as the thinkers, the philosophers, the intellectuals, right? And so anybody who wasn't a Greek was a barbarian. So that's what Paul is making mention of there. And so, uh, again, Paul is expressing uh, he's under this obligation. And, and this word obligation can almost feel like kind of an external pressure being placed upon you by uh, maybe some other individuals or maybe a, a pressure of an organization or something like that that can compel you to do something against your will. And that's not the obligation that he's talking about. This is more, again, of I'm a doulos, I'm a bondservant. It's my responsibility. It's not an, it's not a, a, an obligation in the sense that it's a have to, it's a I get to, and it's a yes, Lord, I, I'm going to be obedient to that calling. So it's not an obligation. He's sold out for the gospel of Christ. So he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, even the wise and the foolish. And so thankfully, I'm in that last word there. I, he, he's even commissioned to people like me, the foolish. Verse 15, so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel for you to who you, uh, you are in Rome. And again, that eagerness is ready of mind. He's got it on his mind. It's in his brain. He's, he's contemplating it. He's formulating it in his mind. And he's ready, again, to, to uh, preach the gospel. He's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And so we finally will get to verses 16 and 17 this Sunday. Pastor Eric, I almost said Pastor Brad. Pastor Eric will be teaching on <laughs> guest speaker. <laughs> uh, verses 16 and 17 are almost like the thesis statement of the, the en entire book of Romans. Um, but just one quick little insight here, and I don't think I'll steal any of Pastor Eric's thunder on Sunday, but... Um, I don't know if you guys know who Chuck Missler is. I love studying uh, Chuck Missler's stuff. And so if, if you're aware of Chuck Missler, um, he has this amazing insight into the ver in verse 17. It says, but the righteous uh, man shall live by faith. And so that verse can be found in Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, I believe. And so when you look at that verse in Habakkuk, it's tucked away in a very small kind of obscure passage in the Bible. Uh, Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets. I think it's maybe four chapters long, very small, kind of tucked away in the back of the Old Testament. But then when you look at that statement, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous, you see that verse three separate times in the New Testament. You see it once here in Romans, you see it once in Galatians, and you see it again for a third time in Hebrews. And so Missler's take is, the book of, it, it's a trilogy, really. So you look at that verse in Habakkuk, and then you start to study the book of Romans. It's all about righteousness. 
So the righteous, the, the, the first part of that is the book of Romans, the first part of the trilogy, shall live. Galatians is all about how we shall live. Galatians is a book that comprehensively articulates how we are to live, not through the bondage of the religious system, the law, but how we live in faith. So it's the righteous, Romans, shall live, Galatians, and then what's Hebrews about? All about faith. Chapter 11. So uh, Hebrews 10.38 is where you find the righteous shall live by faith. Two, two verses later, you got the hall of faith. You got all of the men and women who did exceedingly great things as a result of their faith. And one of the, my favorite verses says, men of whom the world was not worthy. These, these men and women who did these things, these great feats of faith, the world was not even worthy of them. That's, that's how valuable they were to God. And so you get this trilogy of the righteous shall live by faith, uh, written in, in Habakkuk, and then you get Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. You get to see it three separate times, and, and the Holy Spirit just having his fingerprints all over it. And so when you, when you see the Bible come to life like that, it's so exciting. It's so, it's, it makes you want to dig in more and, and, and study the scriptures more, because it's like, wow, I would have never, never put that together. And, and so when, when you get to see different uh, Bible teachers and different uh, you know, commentaries, it just brings the Bible to life. And, and so I just wanted to share that with you. So uh, be reading and meditating on the book of Romans. I encourage you to you know, read on. And you, you know, we're not going anywhere for Romans in a while. We're probably going to be here for a couple months. So read through the book. It's, it's a rich, deep text. And so as you continue to read through it and we come back and meet on Wednesdays and Sundays, hopefully uh, it'll just keep coming to life and you'll start memorizing some of the scriptures. You'll start uh, applying them to your lives more. We'll start growing in Christ. And so be praying about Sunday's message as well. And uh, I think that will do it for us here today. So why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll finish up with, with worship. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. Lord, to know that you became, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That when we partake of the word, we partake of you. That we, when we abide in your word, that we're abiding in Christ. Christ abides in us. And Lord, that's where we start to see fruit develop. That's where we start to see growth, maturity, lasting fruit. And so uh, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the book of Romans. And we're excited to see where it takes us. We're excited to see how we will um, be pressed on to our uh, fruitful service, uh, reasonable service unto you. Uh, Lord, we, we can't wait to see what callings you put on people's lives. Lord, if, if there's any out there that don't know their calling, Paul was called first as a bondservant, as an apostle. And you want to know your calling. You maybe haven't even asked the Lord what your calling is. I'd love to pray for you tonight. We can pray together as a church, as a body, right? Encouraging one another, edifying one another, lifting up one another. And that calling may come upon you as a result of the Holy Spirit, just like maybe those, that small group of Romans that were there the, the, at the day of Pentecost. They go and planted a church as, as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. So maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal to you by coming upon you tonight what your calling is. Is, if there's, is there anybody out there? You raise your hand and we'll, we'll pray for you if you'd like to know what the... Amen, I see your hand. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Heavenly Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters to you now that desire to know their calling in life. As your word says, you knew them before they were in their mother's womb. You have called them. You have given them talents and gifts specific to this calling. Lord, they are eager to serve you. They desire to do your will. I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would reveal to them in their heart of hearts, in their spirit, what you have called them to do. And Lord, maybe it's a humble beginning. Maybe it's just a small step of faith. So knock at the door of their heart. May they be encouraged. May they not have any fear to step out in faith. The enemy will be right there to tell them that they're not equipped, that they're not worthy, that they're not good enough. Lord, may you just silence the enemy 
And may they hear your voice. And they're maybe not good enough, but they're not going to do it in their own strength. They're going to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you fill them right now with the power of your Holy Spirit, the very same power that raised you from the grave, that rolled the stone away, that ascended you to heaven, that very same power would come upon them now and that you would speak to them so individually, specifically right now as to what their calling is for you. Lord, we know that there's much work to be done. The laborers are few. The the fields are wide unto harvest. Lord, we ask for an abundant, abundant batch of of, uh, workers, Lord. So put this calling on their heart now. Reveal it to them. And if they need more prayer, brothers and sisters, if you need more prayer and you want to come up here and get prayer, the pastors will be up here to, to pray for you. So why don't we all stand for a final song and we'll be excused for the night. God bless you guys.